Welcome to Point to Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. Oh, we're here. It's March. March what? Well, wait. March 3rd. So February 28th through March 3rd, 2023. Another month. Another month. We're here in the legal world. What's going on? Anything fun happen? You know, I... This week in the legal world has been dominated by a couple of things. Uh, The Supreme Court hearing arguments on uh, the big education issue, whether or not there should be loan forgiveness. So that was the one thing that's percolating around. Yeah, arguing, um, up and arguing. I know a lot of people are listening to those oral arguments. And then this trial out of South Carolina, you know, a little murder trial. You know anything about that? Oh, the Murdaugh guy. Yeah. 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 Found guilty, and then they like immediately sentenced him to two life terms or something. Yeah, that that's my understanding. Sounds a little crazy, but probably not as that might be the most normal part of the story. Is what is my understanding? Oh, okay, yeah. Um, that, I remember that story. I watched the Netflix thing on it, and I remember like when it happened, and I read the news story about it. And I'm like, this story is so wild. I'm gonna just make sure I don't read any details and wait for the Netflix story. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it, it's out there. It's I mean, I haven't there. even fo- I haven't even followed it that much, and all I can think is, okay, so family who had ties to essentially every little bit of the legal system in the small South Carolina community, and it sounds like they just kind of did what they wanted for generations. Yes, generations. Uh, I read today that he was actually sentenced to life in the same courtroom that I think his grandfather and his great grandfather presided and prosecuted in in the same. Like trial, uh, like a courtroom that he was in. Like, in fact, they had to have a motion in limine to get rid of like his granddad's picture from the wow. back wall. Um, which I'm like, oh man, that's that's Russian novel esque. So is this like, or uh, what's the Reba Reba McIntyre song? The the judge in the town's got blood stains on his hands. The night uh, of the lights night went the, out. Yeah, nights of the lights went out in Georgia. <laughs> is is that the situation here? Like, you know said guilty on a make-believe trial we had a lot of but it was innocent on no trial is what we're hearing i guess was the murdoff family i don't know i don't don't, know either i don't know but i I guess check out the netflix yeah it was listening to this it was worth watching absolutely compelling yeah i i enjoyed i i didn't i mean obviously it's tragedy but it was very well done it was uh interesting to watch and from a legal perspective i think it was uh you know interesting to see how things, certain things played out in that community and under that uh, circumstance. So. so for those of you who aren't watching The Last of Us, because that's what everyone's watching right now. I'm not. If you aren't watching The Last of Us, well, no, because you're watching The Murdoch guy. <laughs> but for those of for those of you who aren't watching The Last of Us, you just watch Speaking of uh, pronunciations and Netflix theories. Yes. Um, if you do watch the, the Murdoch thing, everybody calls it Murdoch. But it sounds like Murdoch. Yeah, it looks like Murdoch. Yeah, and, and it should be Murdoch. And I don't know if it's a Southern draw or just that specific area. Do they say Wardair, Wardair. <laughs> I'm not sure what they do, but I am sure that we have some opinions to get through today. Is that right? I think so. We've got a pretty big, uh, pretty big docket here. All right, let's start with the Nebraska Supreme Court. All right, firing it off in Nebraska Supreme Court. We start with uh, Mueller versus Weeder. Uh, this is an appeal coming. Well, it was. Um, 
it is the final appeal of many, many appeals, and I guess maybe not the final appeal, but uh, it is one of many appeals uh, originating originating out of a uh, fence dispute in Boyd County. It's actually a direct appeal from a district court decision in Boyd County. And the issue here is it stems from a fence dispute between two adjoining landowners. Uh, Originally, it was Richard Mueller and John Weeder. This piece becomes important because Weeder dies uh, while the case is pending in the Court of Appeals uh, originally, and the Court of Appeals opinion was rendered uh, way back in 2017. So dies while this uh, appeal is pe- uh, pending in the Court of Appeals, uh, but the parties continue to litigate it. There is no suggestion to the Court of Appeals that a death happened. Uh, nothing filed with the Court of Appeals at that time. Nothing happens in that court. Uh, the Supreme Court takes this um, appeal directly to their uh, docket to address uh, what impact uh, Weider's death at the time it was first pending with the Court of Appeals had on uh, that appeal and everything subsequent. Because in 2017, the, the Court of Appeals rendered a decision, sent this matter back to the county court. The county court makes a decision, sends it back or sends it to the, the district. Then there's an appeal to the district court. And then this appeal comes. So the Supreme Court says, hey, there's some issues we need to deal with. Uh, they eventually hear reverse and remand it for lack of jurisdiction. But the uh, kind of relevant facts and points of how this run is that uh, in 2014, uh, there's this fence dispute. Mueller repairs a portion of it and asked Weeder to uh, repair another portion. Uh, Weeder said, no, I'm not going to repair this. And so uh, Mueller files a fence dispute complaint in the county court for Boyd County. Uh, The issues are over the cost of repair. They uh, have judgments rendered, cross appeals in county court. Uh, Eventually, this ends up in the Court of Appeals, and um, that's when Weeder dies. When this is remanded, there's a substitution um, for Weeder of his brother and sister as successors in interest because they inherited the land. Nobody objects to this. There's no uh, problems with the brother and sister being uh, substituted. The county court then holds the brother and sister in contempt, saying that their predecessor in interest willfully failed to comply with the judgment of the court entered on December 2015, uh, which ratified the party's mediation agreement over this uh, fence issue. Then there's an appeal to the district court. The district court sustains um, a motion to dismiss and uh, dismisses the appeal from the county court for last, lack of jurisdiction. It says that this was a civil contempt proceeding against Weeder uh, that was personal in nature and it had expired at his death. So nothing could be rendered against, um, against Weeder's successors of interest. The Supreme Court addresses this by saying that you know, the Court of Appeals had never been advised of Weeder's death, um, but nevertheless, the death had an immediate impact on the court's jurisdiction uh, because a deceased person cannot maintain a right of action against another person or defend a legal interest in an action or proceeding. And so here their issue is that they're having to deal, they have a single plaintiff and a single defendant, and they're having to deal with that, that narrow jurisdictional issue of what happens because of this death. And so uh, what they go on to tell us is that Um, jurisdictional consequences depend on whether the action is one which abates or survives upon death. And so if it abates, it means that it was personal in nature and it can't be revived irregardless. If it is something um, that does not and survives death, they here uh, note that even if it survives, it's limited to um, being essentially a jurisdictional 
issue and the action must be revived in the name of a representative or successor in interest before a county has any jurisdiction to continue. And so even if it survives, it only survives, um, you know, so long as to have that successor interest. And so um, here they first have to deal with, uh, is this an action that survives or abates upon um, the death of, so is the fence dispute something that survives or abates upon the death of the defendant? Uh, they go on to say that this is an issue of first impression under Nebraska law. So if you run into this narrow issue, uh, you're going to get an answer on that. Um, and here they deal with the fact that the uh, pending contribution actions survive the death of a party and can be revived um, in the name of the decedent's personal representative. So here, if it was a situation where um, Weider owed money, that can be revived and so they can do that. They also then out lay out the statutory procedure for reviver, which I thought was uh, kind of important and is something that, uh, again, can be looked into if you have an issue where you have a client uh, die, especially when you only have one plaintiff or one defendant uh, during an action. Those are uh, set out in uh, Nebraska Revised Statute 25-1403 to 25-1420 and then 25-322. Uh, so those are the, the statutory schemes for uh, the issues of reviver. Um, the fundamental issue here, though, is that any order of reviver or substitution must be had in the court having jurisdiction at the time of the party's death. And so the court that had jurisdiction here is the court of appeals. And they were the only, they are now the only court in this case with jurisdiction to revive the action and any substitution which purportedly took place in the county court after Weider's death and after the case got remanded was without any force or effect. And so Weider's death suspended the action while it was pending in the court of appeals. And so the Supreme Court now has to send this case all the way back, we think back down, but it's kind of back down and then back up to the Court of Appeals so that they can deal uh, with the further proceedings consistent with um, what they decided here. And so they dismiss this appeal for lack of jurisdiction and remand it not to the county court, but remand it to the Court of Appeals, which is the only court that has jurisdiction to deal with the issue of reviver. So a lot to unpack there. Uh, again, the value I think there is dealing with if you have a client die, especially in a client with only two or uh, two parties at action, how do you deal with that? And you have to deal with that um, issue in the court where uh, the action was when your client died. And any courts after that, if your client dies and you know all of a sudden you're appealing something, you don't have any sort of action at law unless you revive it in the court that had jurisdiction at the time of death. So interesting appeal there, something you don't probably run into a ton. But again, one of those uh, cases, one of those issues, uh, while it's super niche, also very valuable. I, I have a question. Yes. Uh, that was about a fence? Yeah, all over <laughs> a fence. And you want to know the damages? Yeah, I do. $5,000. Huh. American. Oh boy! But um, hey, fences make law. I, I know, and good neighbors. I, 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 I it's all true. I, I get it, but I, wow, um, wow. Okay, uh, McGill Restoration. Uh, it's a Nebraska corporation versus Lion Place Condominium, and an unincorporated cor uh, association. And Michael Henry um, is the uh, other interested party here. So we have two issues basically on this appeal. Um, it's a civil collection matter, and then there's some appellate procedure kind of information. Uh, learned something that I'll get to in a little bit. But 
Um, so they have this condominium and the uh, person who did some restoration work on the condominium uh, ended up after a trial getting a judgment against the association for not paying in the amount of, I think, $25,000. And there's a statute that I didn't know about, 76875 sub A, that says a, a judgment against a condo association is also against its members. Okay. So a, ju- uh, a judgment against the whole is a judgment against the individuals for condominium Correct. associations. For, okay. But what's clarified in this opinion is only for certain things. So the uh, judgment, uh, the person who had the judgment here sought a writ of execution on a specific condo, condo 201, that was owned by one of the members. So they went and got a uh, sheriff uh, to say, hey, this now belongs to them, get out. And the tried to quash that the owner of condo 201 and that was denied uh, at the trial court level and then that was appealed and then a couple months later they sought a second writ of uh, execution on even more condominiums that also was uh, subject to a uh, motion to quash which was denied and those other units were also uh, part of that execution now um, they've Focus here, the Nebraska Supreme Court focuses on the first writ of execution. You'll find out in a second why. Uh, They focus on that writ of execution. They say, okay, this statute, this 76875A, we have an opportunity to interpret that. We're going to interpret that. And this is interesting language, I thought. And I just want to say this out loud and just see how it sounds out loud. Okay. Um, McGill's arguments require that we interpret 76875 sub A. In doing so, our focus is, as always, identifying the plain and ordinary meaning of the statutory language. Right? Yeah. Understood in context and then giving effect to that meaning. It seems like a little bit more than just... I, plain language. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. It just stuck out to me. But anyway, so they interpret this statute and they say, okay, you can have a lien against the condo, but you can't execute against the condo because it, uh, in order to execute against the condo, you have to have the proper person as the judgment debtor, the person who has an interest in that property. The individual there doesn't have an, uh, the individual, so, well, individual association, that sounds weird, but the association doesn't have an interest in that individual property that condo 201 therefore they can execute they cannot execute on that so that uh that needs to be dismissed and vacated so that's what they did now once you appeal something what happens well uh you appeal it and then subject matter jurisdiction is transferred to the appellate court if it's a final appealable order that you're once uh, appealing and perfected so it divests subject matter jurisdiction from the underlying court therefore that second writ of execution that they tried to get um, doesn't doesn't matter at all. It does. It's completely vacated and dismissed because it was done without subject matter jurisdiction because it was in the same realm as uh, the what they're appealing before. So there's some appellate procedure kind of value here. And then if you have again a really niche kind of condominium thing, there's some uh, interpretation of that statute. But otherwise, uh, yeah. Just uh, it was the appeal was then dismissed on both uh, reversed on the first one because it said you can't do that you can't do that writ of execution you should have granted the motion to quash and then the second one is dismissed because there's no subject matter jurisdiction. Condo owners take notice. Yeah, exactly. Then we come to preserve the Sandhills LLC versus Cherry County. 
this is an appeal from a um, issuance of a conditional use uh, permit in uh, Cherry County near Kilgore, Nebraska. Uh, there's a lot of litigation that goes on for essentially uh, two years. A lot of this is procedural. Uh, plaintiffs here had um, initially had a uh, complaint under the um, conditional use permit. And eventually, I guess they, they amend it uh, during a summary judgment argument to be under a uh, petition in error, which is one of two ways that you can pursue um, an appeal from a uh, county board under a conditional use permit. The district court uh, dismisses the amended complaint alleging the uh, petition in error for lack of jurisdiction, uh, saying that the record didn't show compliance with the statutory requirements uh, for the district court to obtain jurisdiction. The Supreme Court affirms the dismissal, um, but differs in the reasoning that they um, affirm and the grounds that they find um, that under. And so essentially what we go in uh, here a lot is the into a lot is the process and procedure for filing an appeal from a conditional use permit and how uh, one to go about that, how to not go about that, and how to perfect that. And so if you have something with a conditional use, this case is um, exceptional for trying to clarify some of that. And so a little bit of what they talk about here is that when you're trying to appeal from a decision granting or denying a conditional use permit, uh, there are two statutory options. One, filing a petition in error under Nebraska Statute 25-1901 or filing an appeal under uh, 2311-14.01 uh, subsection 5 and the procedure discussed in uh, Ulmer, which I guess is the uh, penultimate case uh, as far as procedure goes in this. I guess it's been around for like 15 years and is pretty well known uh, procedurally for this. And so to perfect an appeal from a uh, cup decision under uh, 2314.01 uh, subsection 5, uh, there are two jur jurisdictional requirements that must be met uh, within 30 days after the decision from the county board. Uh, one, a notice of appeal must be filed with the government entity that made the uh, CUP decision or with the county clerk. And two, the required district court docket fee uh, must be paid. And so that's kind of similar uh, to an appeal from the county court uh, to the district court, which is what they say. You know, this, this essentially follows that, but it's more analogous than direct. And that's what creates uh, problems with the process and procedure with this. And so what happens here is that um, essentially a file stamped copy of this notice for appeal doesn't exist on the record. And so there's no way to know if the actual process and procedure for this appeal was met, um, if the docket fee was paid. They originally say they the Supreme Court asked for an order to show cause why this shouldn't be dismissed um, for failure to perfect this appeal. The uh, appellants attempt to provide an affidavit of their attorney saying, hey, this is what happened. This is what was filed. This is what we paid. The Supreme Court says, no, that's not good enough. Uh, there needs to be a dated and or file stamped copy of the notice of appeal, which can appear in the record. And then we need to know that the, the docket fee was paid. And they say without the file stamped copy of the notice of appeal, there can be no presumption that a notice of appeal was timely filed. And so therefore the district court lacked jurisdiction 
it never obtained jurisdiction, it didn't have jurisdiction to review the Cup decision. And similarly, they lack jurisdiction over this appeal. Now, the interesting piece from all this, which um, Justice Stacey actually took the words right out of my mouth as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, what's you know something I, intelligent I can say about this opinion that applies to uh, practice and applies practically to lawyers? And ju- uh, Justice Stacy had a concurrence in this opinion. And here she says that appellants should consider taking affirmative steps to document their timely compliance with the jur- jurisdictional requirements for perfecting such appeals, essentially putting it on saying, hey, lawyers, you know, if you have something like this where you're appealing one of these decisions, you know, we understand that you're you may be doing the exact right things, but you have to take those steps, not just the county clerk and make sure, hey, we have we've paid the docket fee. We have proof of that. And we have, uh, you know, a file stamped copy of um, the notice of appeal. And if we don't have that, then we, we might have issues saying that we had a timely appeal. And then next, uh, Justice Stacy says something that, you know, I think we all often want to say, and that is this court has repeatedly suggested that this area of the law deserves legislative attention, a.k.a. The legislature probably should do something about this and make it a little easier to navigate. But since they haven't, we have to work with what we have. And that means, guess what, lawyers? You have the burden of making sure that you jump through this incredibly gray area of the law and perfect whatever appeals may be necessary and take the steps to get that done because the legislature is sitting on their hands for now. Do you want to come down from your soapbox right now? Is that okay? Oh, was that a soapbox? That was <laughs> Justice very- Stacy's soapbox. <laughs> oh, okay. It felt very preachy at the end. I am merely I am merely the <laughs> megaphone through which she speaks. Okay. Anything else? Nothing else from that one. All right. I have a uh, 61-year-old fella uh, who got on Facebook and started chatting with a 14-year-old child. Um, it wasn't a 14-year-old child. It was actually a law enforcement officer to printing, pretending to be a 14-year-old child. Oof. And the 61-year-old uh, initiated a friend request and started chatting and uh, you know, for a number of weeks and eventually it turned sexual in nature. He sent an intimate photo of himself and then he scheduled a meeting uh, at a local park and there he was arrested. Now, um, he was ultimately convicted of use of an electronic communication device to commit sexual assault. He was sentenced to 50 to 30 years in uh, the penitentiary, uh, together with 23 to 24 months on a related charge, uh, and those were going to be consecutive. So he's uh, there for a significant period of time. Now, the nature of this appeal here is entrapment. Uh, Whenever you have a law enforcement officer involved in part of the crime, um, they're you're going to at least consider entrapment being a potential defense. Now you need to have uh, an, an inducement and a persuasive aspect on the part of law enforcement that requested, encouraged, or attempted to convince the individual to break the law. Um, there's a very good quote here from the uh, United States Supreme Court, which I will find. Oh, and, and as another court has observed they're citing the United States Supreme Court. Um, no, that's not citing the United States Supreme Court. This is First First Circuit Justice Breyer. It confused me because, you know, you see Breyer Justice, you're thinking United States Supreme United Court. States, yeah. 
Uh, well, anyway, they cited it here, and it says, as another court has observed, if the law enforcement's use of deception alone constituted, constituted entrapment, it would be difficult or impossible to stop certain seriously criminal activity, particularly activity involving drugs or corruption or other crimes in which no direct participant wants the crime detected. So they, uh, it's okay for them to lie. It's okay for them to deceive. But how far is too much? What is inducement? Uh, what, what are you going to find here? Here, he alleged that, you know, there were certain elements of the conversation that may have been seen as, you know, asking for sympathy uh, on the part of the 14-year-old child and that he was, you know, kept being engaged with that kind of thing and, and not being completely repulsed when he sent an intimate photo of himself. He was claiming that that was entrapment. Well, here, the, the Supreme Court here is very clear that was not entrapment. Uh, but it does get your mind wondering about like what would be entrapment. What is? How, yeah, yeah. How far do you have to go? So now we have this other case. Um, there was this is a United States Supreme Court case called Sherman v. United States, in and it's from 1958. And in that case, a government informant met the defendant at a doctor's office where both were apparently being treated for narcotics addiction. The informant and the defendant then formed a relationship, discussed their mutual experiences. Later, however, the informant told the defendant that the informant was not responding to treatment and asked the defendant to supply him with narcotics. After multiple requests predicated on the informant's presumed suffering, the defendant obtained narcotics for the informant. Now, relying on that, uh, the fact that the informant resorted to sympathy when asking the defendant to purchase narcotics for him, the United States Supreme Court found this evidence established inducement as a matter of law. So, anyway, it's 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 a murky area, um, certainly in this circumstance i think the court's very clear this wasn't inducement this wasn't entrapment but it does have some a good discussion about where that line might be so if you have something that might involve entrapment might involve something where the inducement portion of the offense is on the part of law enforcement you might want to take a look That's, and this this opinion was basically the i mean it's dateline nbc right you know to I, catch a predator oh i wrote it i wrote that all down i said to catch a predator have a seat over there chris hansen yeah. Uh, yeah. Is that still on TV? I know it was canceled. Ooh. There, yeah. There, yeah. Well, it wasn't. I think, yeah, it was canceled. All right. We won't go down. We there. won't go down the road. But if you do want to Google it, uh, there were some pretty serious reasons why it was canceled. Hey, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, never mind. No, no, that's but quite it, all right. It, that's all I could think the whole time. <laughs> this is to catch a well, predator. Well, I mean, it, it, it is. It's the same kind of thing. But this uh, concludes the Nebraska Supreme Court cases. No, it does not. Oh, there's I another one. one. More. Okay. Yes. I'm, I, <laughs> I'm anxiously for waiting. Concludes yeah. for me. Go right ahead. Uh, state v. State v uh, Blotcher. This is a an appeal from a jury conviction of the defendant of possession of a controlled substance. Uh, the defendant then appeals but voluntarily dismissed her appeal after being informed of a criminal indictment of an evidence technician uh, who uh, was possibly responsible for drug-related uh, evidence in her case. And so this related to the uh, Nebraska State Patrol uh, evidence locker, that whole incident oh, that yes. happened a little while yeah. ago. Yes. And so the state agreed to join the defendant's motion uh, for a new trial and stipulate that there were sufficient grounds to sustain to sustain it. Uh, the district court then overruled the motion for new trial, and on appeal, the defendant argues that by disregarding the party's stipulation, the court abu one abused its discretion, infringed upon the powers of the executive branch, and violated her due process rights. So, uh, the little bit of background here is that a jury finds Blotcher guilty of possession, district court sentences her to probation. 
Um, that gets done. She files this notice for appeal. County attorney then sends a letter to her counsel, letting her know that uh, this individual, this uh, Edigma, Edigma is the uh, individual who was uh, at the Nebraska crime lab and was having all those issues, uh, that uh, she may have directly or indirectly uh, been a part of uh, the evidence that was in this case, and um, it might have been subject to the, her oversight. Um, that first letter states that, and then a subsequent letter also stated that if Blotcher uh, withdrew her direct appeal, the state would join in a motion for a new trial and then move the court to d- dismiss the case with prejudice uh, if the new trial was granted. So essentially says, we'll get rid of this um, if you're willing to do that. Uh, the le- the So uh, Blotcher says, yeah, absolutely, gets rid of this, um, asks for the uh, new trial. And at the first motion uh, for new trial, doesn't supply any evidence. District court instantly overrules it on the same day for not complying with the requirements in Nebraska Revised Statute 292102, uh, says you need to supply evidence. But then uh, the district court says you can try again, gives them a second bite at the apple, uh, holds a hearing on the second joint motion. um, And at that time, the only evidence received at the hearing was an affidavit and the two letters. Those were both offered and received without objection. And then the uh, counsel for the state uh, stipulated generally that there were grounds to grant the motion for new trial, but did not explain what those grounds were or offer any specific stipulations of new fact. So the district court held that the party stipulation must be disregarded because mm. um, whether there were sufficient grounds whether there were sufficient grounds to grant a new trial under 29.12015 was a question of law and the parties could not stipulate to legal conclusions. Um, And then the uh, district court goes on to say, even if um, Edigma's criminal conduct required the exclusion of the criminal laboratory results, the result of the trial probably would not have been any different because other evidence was enough to support a conviction. And so um, not going to grant the motion for new trial. Uh, the um, question here is uh, whether the undisputed facts fulfill a particular legal standard uh, presents a question of law. And so whether or not that was up for the district court to decide, Supreme Court says it absolutely is. It says whether to uh, grant a motion for new trial or not is discretionary. And although it is fundamental that parties cannot um, remove such discretion from the court through a stipulation, and so you can't make a legal conclusion, you can stipulate to facts and stipulate to the facts that uh, should lead the court to uh, believe that there is a legal conclusion for a new trial. You cannot stipulate to a legal conclusion, and therefore that can't happen. Um, The Supreme Court also says that as a criminal defendant, Bloucher lack standing to assert the state's executive powers on its behalf and that this and because the state does not argue on this appeal that the district court invaded its executive powers there is no issue there furthermore it is um unquestionably within the judicial powers branch set forth in nebraska uh, constitution article 5 section 1 to interpret and apply Uh, the laws validly enacted by the legislature. And so this was within the scope of the district court. And then uh, finally, that the district court may grant a new trial on the application of a defendant when newly discovered evidence material for the defendant, uh, which he or she could not with reasonable diligence have discovered and produced at trial materially affects his or her substantial rights. But the key word at the very start of that sentence is that the district court may grant a new trial. So it's abuse of discretion. And if the evidence isn't there, the district court doesn't have to. Uh, Supreme Court says no abuse of discretion and affirms. I'm, I'm biting my tongue a little bit. Yeah, I have a lot I want to say, but we're going to leave it. 
We're going to leave it? What? No, you go ahead. I'll go ahead. I don't know what you've got. So. Uh, defending got hosed. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, you're you're sitting there. You have a direct appeal. You have a right to a direct appeal. And then you're promised all this stuff. You're promised it's all going to go away. Yeah. You're promised it's going to uh, go back. We'll stipulate to a new trial and then I'll dismiss with prejudice. So guess what? We'll bring it back down. We'll make this all go away. We'll get rid of your conviction. You don't even have to worry about your appeal because we're making it all go bye-bye. And then you come down and guess what? Sorry. No. I, I, I view this. Sometimes there's bad phone calls and hard phone calls. That's a hard phone call. That might be the hard, about the, the hardest, hardest yeah. phone call. Yeah. Ugh, Not okay. a good one. Nebraska Supreme Court. I think we're done. Okay. Uh, Nebraska Court of Appeals. Yes. We so have, I'm back we have, up. <laughs> we haven't started. <laughs> Are we back? Yeah, you're back up. I'm right back up. Dennis, right? Yeah. Okay. State v. Dennis. Uh, this is an appeal uh, from a plea-based conviction in two separate cases um, where essentially a defendant here is uh, arguing excessive sentence and then ineffective assistance of counsel. Uh, excessive sentence... That was within uh, statutory limits. There wasn't really anything uh, that was uh, goofy here. And actually, you know, the the court here says that you know, based on the factors, everything was evaluated, and you know, essentially, you got a you got an okay deal uh, here, uh, appellant. And then, as far as the ineffective assistance of counsel here, the only thing I would note is that uh, the defendant wanted to argue that the um, Council had failed to suggest a plea offer to the state that he thought would have been more beneficial. And the court says, hey, uh, you took the plea offer that, you know, you agreed to. This was all part of a plea. The court asked you if you're OK with this plea. You said yes. You don't now get to say, hey, my counsel was ineffective for failing to present this you know, wonderful plea agreement that I cooked up after I've been convicted. Um, so that's not allowed. That was the only uh, kind of interesting tidbit there that was uh, unique in one of these cases where you have ineffective assistance of counsel and excessive sentences, the, the basis. All right. I got uh, State v. Arthur Simpson. It's a post-conviction, uh, which was affirmed. Uh, this might be a short one, too. Um, the post-conviction... Oh, yeah. So the, the only, there's value here. There's a law chunk, a pretty good law chunk with recent, um, recent case law about post-conviction standards and, and how you uh, look at those, including Strickland and other things. And citing a 2023 case, State v. Miranda, which I believe we've discussed previously, um, but that's that's there's a law chunk there, and then I mean, post conviction motions, it's not notice pleading, right? You have to put facts sufficient in there that that demonstrate a lot of things, uh, and that's basically what it is here: is you have a, a pro se party basically making legal conclusions that they were wronged and they are not successful in obtaining an evidentiary hearing. And that's affirmed on appeal. All right. Um, next court of appeals opinion we have a state versus Calderon Rivas. This is an appeal uh, from multiple convictions in Douglas County. Um, the basis for the appeal and, and really the, the big issue on appeal is whether or not um, Calderon Rivas uh, was adequately given Miranda and then uh, whether or not a motion to suppress based on a um, confession gi given during a police interview um, should have been sustained. Uh, here, the, there were kind of two primary issues. One, uh, Calderon uh, Rivas was arrested late at night. It was approximately 11 p.m. He's left alone in an interview room for, uh, you know, a, a, a while. 
Uh, it sounded like approximately maybe 50 minutes to an hour. He falls asleep during that point in time. Then the officer comes in, wakes him up. Um, he only speaks Spanish, uh, but the officer interviewing him uh, was fluent in Spanish, so they have a conversation in Spanish. Uh, the court finds that everything that was asked there uh, was appropriate, that Miranda was appropriately given. There was no issues there. And so even though there was that language barrier, uh, he was um, not under the influence of any kind of mind-altering substances or anything like that. And so therefore, you know, a waiver was knowing and voluntary. Um, and, you know, there was no kind of uh, stress that um, even even though he was under stress, it didn't affect his ability to recall the details and then his ability to appropriately uh, waive Miranda. And so that constitute those constitutional rights were uh, protected um, and it was um, appropriately overruled as far as the motion to suppress on the basis of uh, Miranda and that confession um, went. The other interesting piece here uh, that it had was that uh, there were a couple of motions to continue that were overruled. Um, and essentially here the grounds were that the state hadn't disclosed everything and there was new evidence. Um, and here the, the court had the opportunity to uh, have a hearing on that um, and then take it under advisement and, um, you know, uh, look at look at essentially what uh, counsel had argued at that initial continuance hearing. Um, and here that was evaluated again on abuse of discretion. And they said, you know, the court didn't abuse the discretion uh, in denying the continuances. But if you have anything here where, you know, you're looking at maybe what you have to show for good cause as far as late disclosure of evidence or, you know, proving uh, whether or not all these reports had been disclosed or things of that nature, there is some value as far as that uh, goes. Because anytime you get close to trial uh, and you have late evidence come up, you know, we all run into those continuance issues. So that is discussed a little bit there but uh, everything else is pretty much straightforward as far as criminal appeals go. Got another criminal appeal here, State v. Lopez Martinez. Uh, it's a state appeal following uh, the defendant uh, being successful on a motion to suppress, and it was reversed ultimately um, under the good faith exception here. What happened was a uh, driver operating a vehicle uh, was driving down the road, and then the uh officer uh, relayed the license plate to see whether it was a valid you know registration and license plate while they were driving they transposed some letters there was a dispatch error at some point um, the one that was transposed incorrectly had expired uh, whatever registration um, the reality was it was not expired um, so this dispatch error triggered the stop which led to um, a high school-sized football player size of marijuana, uh, 145 pounds. Is that how we're describing? Just a little bit of weed. <laughs> 145 pounds of marijuana. And then that was uh, ultimately at the, at the trial court level, they had a discussion about, you know, does the clerical mistake, um, does that, is it isolated negligence attenuated from the search or is it systematic error and reckless disregard of constitutional arguments for exclusionary rule to apply? So here at the district court level, they uh, suppressed it. They said, hey, you gotta get this stuff right. You gotta solve these problems. If you're gonna pull people over, you know, you can't make these clerical mistakes or I'm gonna um, not let you use the evidence. So that had a deterrent effect here. Here, it's reversed. It says there's really no deterrent effect here. It was an isolated negligence attenuated from the search. And so this there's no deterrent effect on law enforcement personnel. So basically, um, you're 
you're fine to go back and uh, prosecute using that evidence that you have. The standard of review here, the facts are reviewed for clear error, whereas the law is completely independent. So when this, when you appeal the motion to suppress, it's a completely independent review of uh, what you're doing under the standard of review. So the court reviews independently the trial court's determination. There's a good discussion here of Herring uh, v. United States, the United States Supreme Court case where they're talking about whether something should be excluded or not. And basically, is it systemic um, kind of reckless disregard for constitutional rights or is it kind of an isolated incident of negligence? And that is supposed to gauge whether it's going to be um, excluded from evidence or not. And then this in the concluding, one of the concluding paragraphs here, it says, after the arrest, there were some flippant responses to the officers about, oh, well, hey, at least we got all this weed. Um, and that was recorded on their body cams and offered into evidence. And it was this dispatch, all the, there, although the somewhat flippant responses of the officers to the dispatch mistakes were concerning and could be indicative of a failure of law enforcement to take seriously the right of citizens to be free from unlawful surf, searches and seizures. seizures. However, I conclude, which because it's one judge, reviewing this, I conclude that the isolated mistake of this individual in providing the incorrect license information does not justify the substantial cost of excluding the evidence obtained as a result of the search. So therefore, another bad phone call, another hard phone call you have to make. We won and then we didn't. Yeah, I know. Are we done? I think we're done. Another week. Another week. Thanks for hanging with us, everybody. Absolutely. Thanks for fighting for your rights. Fight for your (laughs) rights. All everyone's rights. Oh, man. Episode 14. 14. We are 14 in. Wow. We're serious. We we are for (laughs) real now. All right, everybody. Have a great week. Have a great March. See you next week. Let the Beastie Boys carry you home. (laughs) 